Osiris. Wait, hold on. Who are you is your entrance into the Who yeah, yeah. and Live at Budokan for Dylan. Oh, yeah. It's like obstacles <laughs> you're setting your path. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, I, I was young enough that I had the time to sit with it and to kind of learn about it. Like, I, that's all kind of all I did. I would read about all these people. So because I, I was a student of it all, I was able to sort of not just go, oh, this sucks. Yeah. You know, I, I sort of figured out why it, why it might not suck. Welcome to Discography, the music obsessives podcast that gives freaks like you and me the chance to connect with a brotherhood obsessed with rating the entire discography of every single artist and band that ever mattered. I'm your host, Dave Gebro, and with three new episodes each week, you're going to gain a comprehensive knowledge of an act's history and output in the time it takes to listen to one album. Now that we're two and a quarter years into our existence, Discography has hit a milestone. I am thrilled to announce that we have partnered with the podcast network Osiris Media, the leading storyteller in music. You can check out all their music podcasts at OsirisPod.com. And in this episode, we'll be turning our spray cans on John Worcester and the live albums that shaped him. Along with our special guest, John Worcester, drummer for Bob Mould, Super Chunk, The Mountain Goats, Et al, Et al, Ad Infinitum, not to mention Tom Sharpling's cohort on The Best Show. In the next hour, we'll learn about John's favorite concert he's ever seen in his life, his favorite album of all time, and the very first rock concerts both of us ever attended. If you're a John Worcester super fan like me, you'll want to turn this free version off right now and opt for either of the two super extended ad-free director's cuts of this episode. The Lieutenant Cut features 28 minutes of essential additional material, and the Ultimate Cut on the major tier features a whopping 56 additional minutes. Both cuts feature overviews of entire live LPs that we had to cut for time, as well as kick-ass rock nerd repartee I hereby deem unskippable. And you can find the ultimate cut conveniently enough in our Patreon record shop for mere pennies at patreon.com slash discography slash shop. Or just subscribe for the complete versions of all our shows. Even if you're on the fence, just head over there because it's finally free to become a basic member. Okay, first things first, you need to know just how seriously I take this craziness. Discography is a music obsessive's dream come true. The guest and I explore an artist or band's entire discography in a futile but valiant attempt to reach a higher truth, which often is cleverly disguised as a nerdy compendium of star ratings and lists. The show is heavily researched, and the music is always reassessed with fresh ears. We don't just cover albums. Uh Uh-uh. We do a searingly honest deep-dive analysis of all EPs, singles, comp tracks, relevant solo work, and sometimes even bootlegs and live stuff. Every release is slapped with an objectively accurate star rating between 0 and 5, which allows us all. The real reason we do this, the Tootsie Pop reward at the center of the rock and roll lolly, to come face-to-face with the true shape of an artist's overall arc. Coming up, we've got Robert Schneider rating the Strawberry Alarm Clock, Mark Robinson from Unrest rating everything he's ever done, Kula Shaker, the Lemon Twigs, and the three surviving Diedrich siblings rating everything they ever released as one of the greatest bands of all time, bar none, the Free Design. 
Oh, and Michelle Phillips, along with Mamas and Papas biographer Richard Campbell, rating everything they ever did. So don't miss out. Open up your listening app right now and subscribe. And away we go then! Tonight's guest is a drummer and a comedy writer. As a musician, you may know him for his work with Super Chunk, The Mountain Goats, and Bob Mould. Breaking the mold of crazy drummers who are decidedly not blessed with a sense of humor, this guy is just as well known for his work on The Best Show with Tom Sharpling. Even though this guy's recorded and or performed live with The Pretenders, Jay Farrar, Ben Gibbard, Katy Perry, The New Pornographers, Margaret Cho, Rocket from the Crypt, Alejandro Escovedo, Amy Mann, Dave Grohl, Nick Cave, guided by voices in R.E.M., I can trace a specific way into my own sensibility back in 1997 in my buddy Rick Kronberg's apartment in Madison, New Jersey. Now Rick's married with three kids, but back then we would congregate at his pad, get ripped, write scripts, and talk about and listen to music incessantly, as always. On that particular day, 26 years ago, Rick sat me down and told me I wasn't going to believe what I was about to hear and then proceeded to play me a tape of what I believe was the initial Rock Rotten Rule call. Now, if you've heard Discography and you're familiar with Rock Rotten Rule, then you're all too aware that there's precious little difference between myself, unfortunately, and Ronald Thomas Klontel, the confrontational author of the titular book. The Klontel character almost literally blew my mind, and the guy behind the mindfuck has managed to maintain the hilarity in all sorts of disparate ways. Lads and ladies out there trawling the live venues and keeping them thriving no matter what, won't you please throw a rose onto the stage your mind for the equivalent of a merger between John Bonham and Andy Kaufman's commingled sensibilities. It's the ultimate argument settler, John Worcester. I want that entire thing on my tombstone. <laughs> Everything you just said. Thank you. No problem. It'll be the size of Kubrick's monolith. <laughs> exactly. <yeah. laughs> Thank you so much for doing this. This is a first time out for Discography because the live album thing was something I've been wanting to do for a while. And when I first hit you with a list, it was from this uh, ingrained sort of Robert Criscow-esque, these are the best live albums of all time. Let's talk about these. These, and you told me, dude, yeah, I don't uh, really connect with that. Let me do my own list, which I'm psyched that you did that. Yeah, it's funny. I love live albums and I listen to probably more live versions of my favorite songs than the studio versions just because there's there's more energy there. The, it, the tempos are usually up a little bit, it's more excitement. And it's always hard to go back to the, the studio versions once you've kind of lived with the live ones so much. So I was so excited that you asked me to do this because I've never been asked about my favorite live albums, which are a key part of my record collection. So you're obviously a major live performer. Touring is sort of the bedrock. It's your lifestyle, right? Pretty mm -hmm. much? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So back in the day when you were just a little kid surrounded by super nerdy music reference books and talking with your friends, when you would dream about being a musician, was it dreaming about stacking tracks or being on the road in a van? Um, it, it was probably playing live. I mean, I didn't get into a studio until I was maybe 18 or so, 17. So, you know, from like 12 to then, I didn't really have a concept of recording. So 
I've been to several concerts and just, you know, you're just as a child seeing these shows, you're just sort of blown away. Like you two uh, in 83, I saw them and, and, um, Oh, you saw a, them that year. I did. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I saw them and it's funny. I'm not a big fan. I don't have any of their records, but that show I saw in May of 83 was, is still probably the best concert I've ever seen, but I was probably 15 or so and i don't know if i would have had the same reaction as an adult like i i would have thought oh this guy's climbing all these speakers and it's a little it's kind of cheesy but yeah. as a as a kid it's just sort of mind-blowing i mean my favorite is unforgettable fire but joshua tree and rattle and hum anyone who wasn't alive during that era We'll just see them perhaps as, and this is arguable, but the fuddy-duddies that they currently are. But back then, they were like the Beatles. I mean, probably not like the Beatles, but whatever the 80s version of that was. When I saw Rattle and Hum, there was dancing in the aisles. Right. Um, yeah. And when I saw the Joshua Tree tour, I mean, you could hear a pin drop in a coliseum. So were you a nerdy kid that would talk to your friends about star ratings? And do you really think, you know, American Stars and Bars is not as good as Chrome Dreams would have been? Were you having these discussions at 12, 13 years old? I was so into it. I didn't really have any friends that were nearly as into it. So I, it was just kind of my own little world. I had friends who were, who were into music, but, you know, by um, probably 13. So we're talking like 79, maybe. I was getting really into whatever, The Clash, The Ramones, The Police that sort of thing and my friends weren't so i was really kind of on my own this is pennsylvania right yeah i lived yeah. A, I, I grew up about maybe 35 miles outside of philly in the country it was it was country so for that period of time i was just kind of I, I was reading you know every magazine i could find cream and rock scene and trouser press things like that but i didn't really have have any friends that were that into it until i got into my first band in around uh it was the summer of 81 we were called hair club for men <laughs> and uh we did played... you name them you named no them, you? No, no our bass player did and i had never i didn't know that there was a hair club for men this was like <laughs> in the, the the very beginnings of what was the guy's name Cy something i'm yeah. Yeah, I'm not, yeah. on, I'm, oh, I'm not only the CEO, I'm, I'm also a, a client. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Our bass player, uh, who went on to be a very successful ad man in Philly, he kind of just stole it. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> But I bring that up because I was by far the youngest person in the band. The oldest guy was 28. I was 14. So these were the first people that I really interacted with that were into whatever, the plasmatics, the Ramones, the pretenders, that sort of stuff. So most of my friends at that point who, who I could talk about this stuff were adults. And I learned so much from those people, especially one of the bands that would play with Hair Club for Men was a, was a, was a duo called Narthex. And the drummer in Narthex went on to be Dean Clean, the drummer in the Dead Milkmen. Mm -hmm. And so those guys became another part of my circle and also my my teachers too i learned so much about whatever husker do Minutemen, and, and things like that from those guys by the way this is a great thing we're doing this because i know you were going to leave the fate of this episode in mike watt's hands but he wanted you to do cream yeah it's funny i, I have no connection to cream i've never been a clapton fan i don't particularly love ginger baker's drumming ostentatious so, it's super yeah, ostentatious but i mean they're all amazing players ginger baker one of the greatest drummers of all time it's just not my thing 
thing. I was kind of surprised by that because I have no connection to it. I, I thought for sure he would think, oh, this guy must like whatever live at Leeds or something like that. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, that's kind of funny. <laughs> yeah, it's good. It's good. We rested control back. Oh, I yeah. did a very, very small bit of research just about the history of the live album before we began, but I didn't want to get bogged down in that stuff. I did find out that the very first live album was allegedly recorded at Carnegie Hall in 1938, and it was a double album of swing and jazz music by Benny Goodman. Wow. Yeah, so it recorded January 16, 1938, first issued in 1950. It was one of jazz's first double albums, the first live recording, and the first to sell over a million copies. Amazing. And, I didn't know. Yeah, I didn't want to delve into yeah. it too much because it's a pretty substantive amount of information yeah, that yeah. we have to talk about. In fact, I have, I have 63 <laughs> pages of notes. Okay. Um, so obviously the question that would hang over all these records, which is, of course, a curated list of live albums that had a direct form impact on you but obviously the big question for each one will be why this one let's kick things off with the police and now, an important message from Don Bowles. Dan Kapelovitz is the only candidate for District Attorney of Los Angeles who has over a decade of experience successfully defending those falsely accused of crimes. Dan Kapelovitz is the only candidate running for Los Angeles District Attorney who is dedicated to ending mass incarceration. Dan Kapelovitz is the only candidate for Los Angeles District Attorney who co-created and produced the televised freakout public access show known as The Three Geniuses, which the L.A. Weekly dubbed the most intentionally psychedelic show on television. Dan Kapelovitz is the only candidate for Los Angeles District Attorney who is an accomplished phototheraminist. Dan Kapelovitz is the only candidate for Los Angeles District Attorney who now has a record label with punk rock legend and all-around weirdo Don Bowles. Dan Kapelovitz is the only candidate running for Los Angeles District Attorney who was not only the features editor at Hustler Magazine, but also Larry Flint's editorial point man for his First Amendment lawsuit against the military-industrial complex and the Pentagon. If you believe in liberty, justice, and the American way, vote for Dan Kapelovitz. Stick it to the man. Vote for Dan. Dan Kapelovitz. I'm Dan Kapelovitz, and I approve this message. <laughs> the Police, Vinyl Villains, a 1979 bootleg, recorded live at Hatfield Polytechnic in Hatfield, UK, and this is February 21st, 1979. Tell me, in what way did this get you in the testicular region? Well, um, where I grew up, and at my age, I, I was I didn't have access to whatever, college radio or hip radio. I don't even know if there was hip radio, but there were some good college stations uh, down towards the city, but I, I couldn't hear them where I was. So I, I was getting really into... You you know, new wave just via reading about it in Cream magazine and things like that. It was kind of rare to hear hear it on the radio, but the police was was one of the bands they would play on one of the local above ground rock stations. Uh, so I got really into Outlandos when that came out. And then Regatta de Blanc, the second record came out pretty quickly. And I loved them both. And I, I would I would kind of play along with them on the drums. I figured out if you had headphones that really covered your ears, you could play along and hear the music. 
you know, now it's down to a science, these headphones they've got. But but back then it was just like there weren't a ton of headphones that that really knocked out a lot of the cymbal sound just that you're hearing. So you couldn't really hear hear the record you were playing with. Was he a drummer that you could actually play? I mean, he's a complex. Um, I was 12 or 13 when I was playing along. So I thought I was playing it, but probably okay. not. Anyway, I was such a fan. There was a really good record store, maybe 20 minutes from where I, I lived. So it was kind of a trek to get there. But my dad would, would take me once a week to a drum lab. Lesson, and this record store, Key Records, was right in that town, Lansdale, PA. So they had a really good bootleg section. And they had this police bootleg called Vinyl Villain, super cheap cover, you know, like two colors, black and white. And on the back, it, it was mislabeled as taking place at, at the Whiskey in LA. And it wasn't until years later when the class show we we're talking about, a video showed up of it on YouTube and it was professionally shot. Uh, it was a, a BBC series back in, in the late 70s called, I think it was called Rock Goes to College. They would film, I, I don't know if it was just Hatfield Polytechnic or other universities in that area, they would send the film crew and video and record these bands with pro gear there, there's an acdc one um police a few others but i would play along with this record all the time and i loved it just because like most live records you know it's up a little bit it's more exciting than the record and you know everyone's taking chances and i got to interview Stuart copeland maybe three or four months ago and that was the first question i think i asked him was about this show if he remembered anything about it and he did he just said like it you know it was it was a crazy college show and the audience is going insane in it. I think they're going more insane because maybe their football team won that day or something. Yeah, right, right. And, and they got the scarves going and stuff. But he said that was just another crazy college show. It's the live debut of Message in a Bottle. And it's great. It's really good. And it's, it's a little different, too, the way it starts. Very different. Most of the renditions here are a world away from the studio versions. I'm not yeah. of the same mind as you. I typically will prefer studio versions. Mm -hmm. And then the live experience, a lot of times the album will not necessarily capture the experience of actually being there and being moved right. by the swell of everything. First of all, I had to get over the idea because I love the police, but the disparity between the police and my personal opinion, Sting since Dream of the Blue Turtles, it's almost impossible to remember that they were once a vital outfit. Right. <laughs> and by the way, I'm curious uh, your thoughts on Clark Kent. Oh, love it. I loved that EP when it came out. I uh, I listened to that all the time. Yeah. A, a new version comes out today with like- Oh, is that eight, right? Oh, I gotta eight, find it. Like 18 tracks on it. Oh my God, that's amazing. This group is thoroughly interesting to me because by the time we get to punk, it's to kill off bands like Curved Air. Basically, the police came up to kill the bands that the guys in police had just been in. Right. They were kind of self-admitted posers too, you know. I mean, Andy Summers had—he was in that band. What were they called? Dantelian's Chariot. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Is that was called. Yeah. And he was in the Animals for a little bit. Zoot Money. So these guys—they weren't punks, but at that age, 12, 13, they had no baggage with that. I didn't care. I, I think it's great. Of, yeah, I, I, I mean, curved air. I mean, I like my punks knowing more than three chords. Yeah, and that's my favorite era of of a lot of those bands, like the Ramones. I love probably the sixth album the best. It's it's called Pleasant Dreams. It's like a pop rock album. I like when those bands kind of broke out. Like London Calling's my favorite album of all time. To me, that's the ultimate a band evolving so quickly and so fantastically and it's recorded it's actually documented so 
I love when a band figures out how to be a band and what they can do. And it's, it's usually two or three albums down the line. For me, the peak of the police came with Walking on the Moon. I feel like mm. Stuart Copeland's triplets during the breakdown, right. the vibe, it was so far removed. It had nothing to do with punk. It's just something completely right. different. And this is actually the best document of the police as a great band that I have ever seen or heard because I watched the video. It's a major discovery. It was a major discovery for me. Yes, and that that's what's interesting uh, about the police. And we talked about this on uh, in that interview was that for the most part, he learned those songs an hour before they recorded. Message in a Bottle was it was in the mix, but like pretty much most of the songs from there on out, as far as I understand, they learn those songs an hour before they cut them. And so that's why like King of Pain, maybe one fill in the entire song on the record and live is just, he knows how the song goes at this point. So it's just, it's all over the place. And that's one reason I, I, I do kind of prefer the studio police as to the live one, because you're hearing the song more than you're hearing a guy who's just a top shelf drummer knowing the song and just getting all his licks in. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So. And by the way, I gave these all star ratings because I just can't help myself. It's like a tick. <laughs> so I, you know, it's it's not really relevant, but this is a hard five for me. Oh, excellent. Yeah, hard five. So yeah. number two, The Clash, Capital Crisis, a 1980 bootleg, another major discovery, major. I mean, this is a band that I've always loved since I was little. And again, this could be the ultimate document. It's got my favorite Clash song on a complete control. Everything is at encore level intensity through the entire show plus it's a showcase for possibly the world's shittiest dressed band you got the jumpsuits and, and everything i can't remember what they're wearing in this but again a visual reminder of how great the music was and how crazily jumpsuit centric their wardrobe style was tell me about your introduction to this record they're my favorite band at the time i got that it's funny it's, it's a pop song but the first song of theirs I, I heard was on the radio train in vain so this would have been december of 79 it didn't come out in america till i think january of 80. I just loved the song. I, I don't even think I knew it was The Clash. And then the aforementioned Cream Magazine was really heavy into them. So I was always always reading about them, but I didn't really know what they sounded like other than this song. And uh, so it's a funny entrance to getting London Calling. I wanted to, to buy it at our mall, which was maybe 20 minutes away, but it had a parental advisory sticker on it. I didn't know those even exist. I didn't either, but it, it's, it said something like lyrical content might be offensive. And I was 13, I think. So I didn't chance buying it. But then in February, my parents and I went on a very rare excursion to uh, New York City to see West Side Story one very snowy day and we were killing time before the show and went to this store it was kind of famous I can't remember the name but they mainly sold sheet music but they also had albums and there was an unstickered copy of London Calling. And I was with my dad. And since there was no sticker on it, it was like, okay. And I bought it. I just remember looking at the cover and all the inserts, those great Penny Smith photos for the entire train ride back. And then that night playing it in its entirety. And I was looking for Train in Vain, which is the last song. And it, it wasn't marked at that point. Right, it, wasn't, right. it didn't have any sort of notation on it because it was cut so late in the game. There wasn't time to put it on the sleeve, the info. Finally, it was the last song. I was like, oh, there it is. Is amazing and then after i heard that i thought but the rest of it is incredible also and so it was the first record that was like this is my team like these are my guys and so i'd get anything clash related at that point and there was a great store 
closer to the city called Plastic Fantastic in a town called, I think it was Ardmore or Bryn Mawr or something like that. Mountain Ghost just played down the street from it recently and it, was, it wasn't there anymore. But they had a great bootleg section too. And I got this bootleg called Capital Crisis and it was recorded at the Capitol Theater in Passaic, New Jersey in, um, I guess it would have been early 80. Is that correct? I think. It's March 8th. March of 80. Yeah. And so it's it's the London Calling Tour. So there, there's an incredible train in vain on it. He plays this great melodic solo on the outro of that song. That's what he would always do. But for some reason, this night, it's almost like I'm talking about the dead and like, oh man, Passaic 79 yeah. is the definitive train in vain outro. And it is. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> so I just love this record. I played along with it all the time. I think Topper Heaton is maybe the greatest drummer of all time or in, in my top five for sure. And then in, in 2002 or three, I realized that the video of this show exists. And I'm not sure how it got out immediately, but I remember buying a DVD of it somewhere on tour in 2003. And it's on YouTube now, the whole show. And it's just an amazing show. They're so good. It's a perfect show. And yeah. this thing existing on video, when I saw that it was up there from beginning to end, you're slack jawed. And I couldn't help but think, because the quality level of this thing is so high. All these people assembled in there. I'm wondering how many of those people took that great music for granted, because it's very rare you get something that really is that authentically great and not just because right. I'm a older guy and it's kids get off my lawn. That's a historic cavalcade of songs. The show couldn't be any better than it is. And I also got to ask you, you know, I grew up in Jersey. We had record stores, but there were no bootleg sections anywhere. How did you luck out being surrounded in bucolic Pennsylvania? How did they get away with doing something like that? I think it it was just it wasn't at the forefront of law, law enforcement's uh, you yeah. know uh radar. You know, I, I don't know. I don't know if they if they got busted ever or not, but I remember there always being bootlegs around. But they they're always really expensive. $15. I remember the, the 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 police one must have been inexpensive. But the clash one I remember was at least it was it was double digits. I remember going into the village as a kid and getting a double vinyl of Bob Dylan Live at the Royal Albert Hall. Yeah. Uh, there's one Blind Boy Grunt and the Hawks. It yeah, was another basement tapesy thing. But it was always on a trip to the city. You're very lucky. Yeah. This band, I, I remember December 31st, 1999, it's uh, approaching midnight, and I'm thinking, what is the last song that I want to hear in this millennium? I don't know if you remember what yours was, but I was in a house full of people, and I begged them to put on Spanish bombs, and that's oh, all nice. I saw at the last millennium. What a huge discovery. This is in the top two or three of big discoveries for me from this list. There's not a single thing on here that's not absolutely incredible. Ugh man thank you for this yeah i've already seen it a few times and turned a ton of people onto it nice. so needless to say five stars anyway number four is the heartbreakers live at max's kansas city 1979 which i owe you a huge debt of gratitude for for a very specific reason but please run with it the aforementioned hair club for men band my first band the bass player who, who was the 28 year old he was he was really into the heartbreakers and i probably had the first dolls record and something about the dolls i mean obviously one of the most influential bands and it's a great album i like the heartbreakers more for some reason but interesting anyway so key records the record shop i mentioned earlier where I, I got the police bootleg they had a copy of the heartbreakers live at max's and i don't think i'd really heard the heartbreakers yet but i remember my first 
paying gig hair club for men played at like a local vfw hall and and we charged whatever a couple bucks and we actually i made 60 bucks and it was around the time of my birthday too so i was deep with money you know 60 dollars <laughs> and, and so i i went to key records and i bought iggy pop live tbi and the heartbreakers live record and some other things and they both are not great sounding records but they really especially made iggy especially yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah the story goes he he kept the advance and spent like a thousand dollars on the record <laughs> um, but the heartbreakers record i remember just listening to that every day after school so we're talking i was probably in eighth grade maybe or ninth it was yeah it was just a, a, a huge record for me i don't recall playing along with it much on the drums but i just love the energy i don't like drug culture at all like i think the glamorization of heroin and stuff i think is really stupid but you could tell even as a 13 or 14 year old that something's wrong with these guys and it comes out as this great performance but you know the stories of of him being uh, uh, completely terrible are legend but this was a great night and it's not really punk rock even but it was one of the first records of that new york scene that i really connected with that really made a an impression and the songs are great i love there's a song called i love you that's great the first song whose title has had five different titles milk me that is just ferocious man but and that's chatterbox chatterbox and there's a third yeah. title for it too leave me alone it's, i think on okay. so alone it's called leave me alone and I, I always loved his voice i loved how he looked i think he looked cool and the right profile the band that got signed to arista that evolved into the carnies jeff our singer he was really into johnny and so we would do Heartbreakers covers and I got I only saw him once. It was right when I moved down to North Carolina. So somewhere in like March of 86, he was playing at this little club in Raleigh called The Brewery, which probably held no more than 400. This would have been eight, 86 and it was great. It was really good. I mean, he, he had his moments of fucking up, but for the most part, he was really good. Like all those guys, it's a shame how it, how it plays out. But it was so inevitable. I mean, you know, oh, yeah. Billy dies in 72 and then somehow, somehow Johnny stays alive for 20 more years, which seems like a miracle. Right. But, you know, the two problems that I always had with the Heartbreakers, who I really like, is that there was never any audio document that seemed to really sum up what was so great about them because LAMF is so legendarily muddy and shittily mixed. Not performed right. but this is a corrective for everything number one sounds great it sounds like the album probably should have sounded and also the aspect of them as a heroin band is kind of front and center here it doesn't shy away from it i believe something happens with too much junkie business where they leave the stage almost immediately right. but it's a real necessary corrective because even though it shouldn't matter if a punk song sounds like shit, they missed the mark on that record right right and unfortunately it's not the original drummer ty sticks is the drummer on, on that one but he's great he's great yeah he was in the band for a very short time so they played at max's on august 18th and 19th during that same time with Lee Crystal. Oh, and then, wow. I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah. From the Blackbirds. Wow. And then Ty joined the band for the two gigs in September wow. that resulted in the live album and for a oh. short tour. Oh, I didn't know and, that. Wow. And then he was replaced by Tony Machine by the time. Oh, right, right, right. When they were back at Max's on November 17th. So it was a mess. And it's so hard to separate what, for me, I'm always thinking about these guys going on tour when they need heroin money. So. Can't Imagine. Wasn't that what it was? Was like, we need some way to get heroin. Maybe we should have a band. Oh, I don't know. But I, I mean, it's remarkable that they had it together enough 
to even be a band. You know, I right. think they always they probably always had someone like like Lee Childers, who was kind of their manager person, but they're unmanageable. It's it would be a thankless job to manage a band like that. It's oh, yeah. Ultimate nightmare. It's almost better if the person is not on drugs and is an asshole. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> All right. That one is phenomenal. I give that one five stars. It's Ooh, uh, yes, absolutely crucial. Hi, I'm Dave Gebro. I threw my career as a licensed hearing instrument specialist in the trash, sold my house, and moved to the East Coast with my wife and four-year-old son in order to focus on making the ultimate podcast for music obsessives thrive. Now I need your help. Although Discography is rated in the top 2% of all podcasts globally, the economics of this thing are tricky. Becoming a member of Discography's Patreon gives you access to over 100 more exclusive episodes. And moving forward now every Sunday for only $5 a month as a private first class, you get our new weekly show by and for Discography's Patreon family, the Discography Soldiers of Sound podcast. It'll be hosted by Rudy Fishman, and given his sociopathic tendencies, I'm sure it'll have a lunatic's take over the asylum edge to it. If all you want to do is show some love, there's now finally a $1 tier. Don't miss out. Become a recruit and get your personalized backstage pass for a buck. And for the cheapskates, homeless people, and all the bums sponging off mom and dad, don't care, just join. It's now completely free to join as a basic member, and it'll be the only place you'll be able to get our upcoming Lou Barlow, Corey Hansen, Mark Robinson comp Metal Machine Muzak, as well as the triple album rock opera El Farmony I created with Joe Kennedy as the mentally regarded and the ability to purchase one-off Patreon episodes. That's it. Back to the show. U2's Live at Red Rocks. I liked U2 when I was younger, but I didn't have any of their records. One of the guys in Hair Club for Men had Boy and October, and there were some songs I liked. And then my brother and I got tickets to go see them on the war tour at the Tower Theater in Philly. And um, it was just incredible. So I would have been maybe 15, maybe 16. And the Dream Syndicate opened. Oh, nice. Yeah, wow. yeah. I just played with Steve the other day, Steve Wynn at, at a show. and uh, Nuggets, uh, right? Yeah, yeah, he was great. He's incredible. Did and, you ever um, meet Kendra? Never, no. No, I never met Carl either. Carl was in the band at this point. And, and uh, U2 was just amazing. Like, the songs were so good. And, you know, he was so exciting, you know, with the flags. And it was very, it was a lot of showmanship. And he was, right. I remember before they went on, even there was a Budweiser banner behind the stage. And it was the first night of a two-night stand. And I think Springsteen might have been there. I found out years later. I think it was that night or the next night. So someone obviously threw a hissy fit and said, I'm not playing if that Budweiser banner is down. <laughs> It got take it got taken down they were just great and, and then maybe a week or so later there was a live broadcast of this show i'm not sure if it was a week or so later but somewhere that summer was the infamous show at red rocks that was filmed you know for that ep and there was an mtv show and um so i recorded that show off the radio that night whenever that was and the versions of the songs were just so i just thought so much better than they were on the records of like uh, electric company and um black cat and uh, out of control and a lot of that is just down to how a typical live show is obviously going to be you know your energy's up more but the edge is singing on it is really great his backup vocals really make you two back then amazing like his singing was so good and and it's so it's like the so, higher register and it just kind of like cuts so well with what everyone yeah. else is doing and so just like i guess i would just say it's an example of a really great band playing 
incredibly under really, I guess, duress because the weather was apparently just, it was incredibly cold. Like it was, it was and raining. raining. Yeah. And raining. And also one other element that I wasn't aware of until researching this is that it was not well attended. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So just like all the great live gigs where all the pieces fell into place last minute, a thick mist filled the air and obscured the crowd. So it was perfect. Yeah. I mean, while, while you're doing a gig like that, like we've done a few shows with whoever, with Bob or Super Chunk or Mountain Goats, where it, it like there's weather circumstances are just crazy. It's kind of not scary, but you're like, how's this going to fuck up at this point even more? And I'm sure they were thinking that at the same time, where yeah. it's just like, oh my God, we're going to be able to do this. Are my, are my fingers going to be able to move because it's so cold? But then you're also thinking this must look amazing. And it does. Yeah. I mean, you can see the breath, the mist. They, they made have, the most of it. And they have a natural inclination to skew towards having a flair for the theatrical. Oh, yeah. And they took this one all the way to the bank there because this performance, I can't think of anything that more aptly sums up the pre-Joshua Tree phase of their career than this. This is the moment in the 80s where when you think about them, most people think about this. And, you know, I'm not blind or deaf. I I know who U2 is now and what they mean to me now, and it's a very different thing. But unlike a lot of people who write them off because songs of experience was given away and you know just there's warring notions at play in their catalog but the early stuff not just this but i love and think october is Mm -hmm. way underrated the excellence of their early stuff way overshadows whatever kinds of experimenting they're doing to remain relevant now yeah i mean you can't knock them for trying there's this manager named bill kerbishley i don't know if he still manages the who but he managed the who for a long time and i think he might still manage robert plant but it was some documentary i saw on um whatever anniversary of the who tragedy in cincinnati in mm-hmm. uh, 80 or 79 and uh he said it was this great quote i'm sure i'm gonna mangle it but it was basically like you know all those things all those missteps or bad things that happen it's just another line on your face right yeah it was so, it was so, i mean it was more eloquent than that but i but i i kind of feel that where it's just like if you're an artist it's not going to be a home run every time you know, you're no. going to have parts. I played with Bob Mould. He made a record called um, Modulate. Yep, like two, his electronic stuff. Yeah. yeah. And that threw so many people off. And it, I think it took a long time for him to kind of claw back, you know, and um, I think that's a that's a great example of, of that kind of situation where, yeah, it's one thing we I did that might not have connected, but. I'd regretted not trying it. You know, that's that's how I, I look at any kind of missteps I've ever had, where it's just like, well, I'm glad I tried it. I, I'd rather have tried and failed than to have always wondered if that could have been something. Yeah. You know, you know? But, yeah, I'm familiar with everything Bob's ever done. Mm-hmm. And I don't think he's taken a single misstep in his entire life. No, he's the king. I mean, he's hard to argue with his output. You know, ever since Workbook and Intolerance came out and I was, you know, watching the progress of everyone, I'm just secretly lying in wait for Norton to fucking step up to the plate and run away with things. He's had bands. Actually, his band his band opened for us uh, the last time we played in St. Paul. Wow. Greg's did. Yeah. I don't think it exists anymore, but I mean, he's he plays the exact same way he did. Like it's, yeah. you, you watch him and it's, oh my gosh, like it's 86 again. Like his he has the energy, looks great. It's funny. I have only seen Bob for the Black Sheets of Rain tour and I met him before then because I was doing a show for the Boston University station and and I asked him, do you mind if I take a picture? And man, was he scowling at me. The picture itself, he's looking at me like he wants to slit my throat. But 
it's it was during black sheets of rain he could not have been a happy fella during that time based on those songs yeah he i mean he's that's what's interesting about him because a lot of people their impression of him is just that from that era where you know he was very uh intense very intense and now it's like he's not he's a, he's a 180 from that like he genuinely loves what he does he has fun he's silly it's real it's really interesting to watch that side take over from that side and, and hopefully if, if you know most humans hopefully that's the trajectory of your evolution as as you age you know hopefully i would like to think i figure yeah, some stuff yeah. out yeah 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 but uh, you know this is a guy who just i think two years previous had written too far down which if i could pick one song that explains depression better than any other song on the planet it would be that oh yeah so it's not it's not shocking that things would not go incredibly smoothly when I met him. But in any case, yeah, the U2 thing is really part of the collective unconscious at this point. It's also the best wearing of a mullet. I think those are wigs. Right. Uh, and also, I met Bono and the Edge. I waited tables at Musso and Frank's. Oh, yeah. Wow. And, and they came in, and I kind of knew exactly what to say because... I knew everything about them. So I knew initially they were called the Larry Mullen Jr. Band. And, you know, same birthday. Really? The Halloween baby. Yeah. Oh, that's great. <laughs> that is the best birthday imaginable. <laughs> and I told them that I really thought it was not too late for them to release Elvis Presley in America as a single. They had their publicists come back in and say they really, really liked you. Oh, nice. That's yeah, great. yeah. Anyway, hard five stars. Number seven is a record I had not heard before, and I loved it. It's the Descendants Livage. Yes, I'm, um, I'm pronouncing that right, right? Yeah, Livage, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's 1987. It's also possibly the quickest turnaround ever on a live album. It was recorded July 13th, 87, and out by November 4th. Wow, I didn't know it was that quick. So records like this and Land Speed Record, was it helpful for you as a drummer to be able to keep up or was that really not uh, instructive land speed because it's such a sound smear yeah um it's it's impossible to play along with on drums but those first two songs there's two songs i think bob sings one and grant does one uh all tensed up and don't try to call is the other song yeah. at the top at the top of those records and whatever is bob's song i've suggested learning but it's too far back for him to think yeah. about a, a song like that i know speed was involved so do you have to be on right. speed to be able to play that fast <laughs> Maybe. is that yeah well, we did a live record with Bob. Yeah, we recorded it at all tomorrow's parties. Oh, nine or 10, maybe. And we hadn't played together in quite a while. And we don't practice. We don't rehearse ever in the Bob Mold Band. We played together 12 years. We've rehearsed seven times. I remember Bob and I drank a lot of coffee before that show. Just because I, I think we were on late at night or something. And so I remember us drinking a lot of coffee and that record, the songs are so fast. They're really, yeah, really fast. Yeah. Uh, um, <laughs> I don't know what got me to that, but Descendants are our legendary coffee band. The honest truth is like the faction of punk that passed me by, you know, as someone in high school who was eagerly devouring the more art damage side of things. So Minutemen, Husker Du, Sonic Youth, I was incessantly listening to that stuff. But at least where my head was at at the time, Black Flag and Descendants, Circle Jerks, that kind of stuff, it passed me by because it just seemed like, I don't know if it's more of a blue collar or less of an intellectual bent or, or what have you, but now listening to this, I completely see the error of my ways. I mean, this is as good as any of that stuff. I love all of it. I think of the Ramones and Descendants, Misfits as, as pop bands. Like I listen to them mm -hmm. because they're great pop songs. And I, I think that's what really set them apart, Descendants. And, and I, th I think I see them as ground zero for whatever, emo, pop, punk, whatever you want to call that. I don't think 
anyone's really done it better. Five stars for sure. Oh, hi, Dave again. I got to tell you about the next tier. As a lieutenant, you get an ad-free, substantially elongated director's cut of every episode. And you'll be getting the shows an entire week early from now on. And now back to our expertly crafted program. Elvis Costello and the Attractions, live at Winterland, 1978, radio broadcast bootleg. This went down June 7th, 1978. I taped this off the radio, probably that year, I guess, probably not long after the show. It was in uh, San Francisco. It was the final show of this tour that they were doing. I think it was the Rubenews, Nick Lowe, and Elvis. So it would have been the tour for... Um, this year's model. Yeah, but I feel like they are playing something from Armed Forces, maybe. But Oh, yeah, so maybe, totally. No, they're playing right? Party Girl. Goon Squad, Goon Squad. There, maybe? Yeah, yeah, Goon Squad. It's just a band that's just at the height of their powers and they're they're only a couple years old and i think like player for player i don't think it gets any better as a band like he he was so fortunate that he had kind of the best keyboardist of that era can we please talk about that keyboard sound is that farfisa i think so yeah okay yeah so that kind of snotty roller rink style keyboard yeah it to me is the key to that early band because there's a garage arrogance about it that feeds into now i don't think he was a true misogynist i think he was a nerd who got his heart broken a few times oh, yeah. and so it's easier to be angry than it is to be sad i know when mira applebaum cheated on me in high school the first thing that i did was i reached for this year's model and it got me through that it is to be fair and by the way that was just as much my fault as it is hers i'm not castigating mira but there's almost no better record except for mid-60s dylan to get through a breakup to use false anger to get through that that terror of being cheated on right and they both have songs called you belong to me <laughs> right right <laughs> this is absolutely incredible i saw him later on the first tour i saw him on was for spike and mm -hmm. by that point he'd become too opulent a songwriter to allow himself to revisit this territory yeah i agree i've seen him a couple times in the last seven or eight years he's, he's always great he's, he's still great there are flashes of of that in there but i mean like, like anyone who just wants to keep doing it you just find different things to do and hopefully you can still call back to that period and give people that because he knows people are coming to hear angels when we're yeah, red yeah. news and in the mountain goats we have that have that too and with bob you know wherever it's it's just you want to play your new stuff because it's fresh to you but you also know that these people are coming to hear like five specific songs and you try to give them a, a, a few of them i mean I, i'd want to hear those songs if i was just a fan coming to, to a show i think dylan's the only one that really gets away with it because he's 82 you just feel like i'm lucky to be here and he's there i'll take what you give me i don't know what kind of dylan fan you are but big. i know that yeah big time yeah, yeah. All right. Are you so incredibly excited to hear the complete Budokan this weekend? Yes. And it's funny because I almost put this record in here, not because it's a favorite, but it was the it was the first Dylan record I bought. Budokan I, uh, was? Yeah, really? Yeah. Oh, well, shit. Same and you're still thing. a fan. Oh, yeah. Same yeah. thing with the jam. My mother and I were driving to visit my grandmother in upstate New York, and it was the year that the, it came out, which was 78. 78, yeah. Eight, and it was a double record. And yeah. I had a, I had a boombox with me on this on this trip, and we stopped at, it might even been a drugstore, it might not even been a record store. And they had cassettes there, and they had the double cassette of Live at Budokan, and I thought, well, I should get this, because it's got all the songs, <laughs> yeah. the titles I've read about. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, it's a crazy record, and it's a whole It's crazy. Stuff. It really yeah. is. And I can't say I loved it when it came out, but that was 
was my entry in into him. And I want to get the record just to have all the ephemera that comes with it, like the pictures and the booklets and everything. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. So I, I will say it's not I didn't put on here either. For my money, the greatest live version of any song ever is the Tonight I'll Be Staying Here With You from the Rolling Thunder tour. I think it's the first song on the live record. I love it. And until I, I got the criterion of the Rolling Thunder Scorsese thing, I didn't know that there there was video of it. And it's, yeah. it's one of the one of the extras on on the disc is the live version of that song. And, and you finally see it happening and you'd had it in your mind so long what it looks like. And it was close. Yeah, it, was, yeah. it was close. Yeah, that, that was exciting to, to have that little extra present yeah, itself. The, this next one I've had for a very long time, and it has a very interesting genesis to it as well. Number nine, The Who, The Kids Are All Right, which is a soundtrack, actually. And that's from 1979. Talk to me about when this hit you and uh, what kind of impact it had on you. Because I know um, it, was, it was seismic. Yeah, the, uh, the, the first Who record I bought was Who Are You when it came out. And that's kind of all I knew, too. Wow. So, them. wait, hold on. Who Are You is your entrance into The Who yeah, yeah. and Live at Budokan for Dylan. Oh, yeah. It's like obstacles <laughs> you're setting your path. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, I, I was young enough that I had the time to sit with it and to kind of learn about it. Like, I, that's all kind of all I did. I would read about all these people. So, because I, I was a student of it all, I was able to sort of not just go, oh, this sucks. Yeah. You know, I, I sort of kind of figured out why it, why it might not suck. Yeah. Um, so the kids are right came out what 79 and at that point keith had died and they came back with kenny jones they're going on tour in america so it was massive this was but huge. he wasn't dead yet so the thing that that kids are all right is actually notable for is has the last ever right. keith moon the, so yeah, yeah yeah the who was big news at this point like it was on, it was on the news too you know the the cincinnati thing and i must have gotten the soundtrack when it came out and i saw it in a theater i remember seeing it in a theater that had a terrible sound system so so it just it didn't have the impact it should have but the album did and and i remember it's it's one of the first records i played along to a lot specifically bab o'reilly and won't get fooled again from the shepperton show which i guess was his his last concert with the band which is probably so, good i don't know if it's because of keith's depleting energy levels but the won't get fooled again just from the perspective of somebody looking to play along with a song is mm -hmm. easier to play than the studio version oh yeah yeah and you can tell i mean he's it's yeah. rough it Even is. that, especially when you watch the video, it's like, oh, yeah, this guy's really he's yeah. out of shape. But thank God for click track. And apparently he was great at playing with a click. Wow. That's why those sound good, because he's keeping up with the, what he's hearing in the in the phones. So, yeah, I played along with that record so much when I was a kid, for better or worse, because he's so wild. And when you're a kid, you want to play like that because it's, it's cool looking and it's exciting. But yeah. when you get in a band, you realize, oh, nobody wants that. Like, <laughs> yeah yeah and I, i'd advise every young drummer to learn how to play the guitar or the bass and just kind of play along with records and you'll realize what a drummer's job is and the who is a anomaly in, in that scene as is mitch mitchell with Jimi hendrix where it's like it works for it you know that kind yeah. of overplaying works but even keith moon got jim keltner to play on his solo record how is it, two sides of the moon i i haven't actually heard it yet i I've only heard a couple songs. There's a, there's a Lennon song on it that's like a rock and roll song that John Lennon gave him. I mean, he's a terrible singer. It just couldn't really sing. And it was a party, but I'm sure also the partying helped him cope with the fact that he knew he's not a front guy. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. 
Yeah. So that was probably tough to to have all these incredible players around you. And you know that what you're doing is just kind of, it's not great. With no. all those session guys that played on it and you know, <clears throat> he, had, he had great people. It, it was probably a weird situation to be in. Yeah. You know? The Who are such an interesting band. You know, young men going through puberty and being a teenager. If you do connect with these guys, it pays off in ways that it's impossible to explain. Way more so than Led Zeppelin because they don't have the navel gaze aspect down yeah. when pete townsend sings did you see that sequence in freaks and geeks where they showcase i'm one yeah 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 i mean that to me says everything that really hit home for me yeah i mean it's a band where the guitar player is the rhythm section like the guitar right, player's right. keeping time and everyone is soloing and there's other bands that sort of try that but they don't sound like the who you know like, like the who just kind of had it down where even though they were all soloing at the same time it all fits somehow and like you listen to the studio version of won't get fooled again the drumming is incredible uh, yeah it really is amazing my favorite thing about that song is that it has the the best scream in music history and the second best scream. The first scream is really good, but then the second one, I always prepare for it. I have to prepare for it because if I close my eyes and get into the section before it hits, it always brings a feeling of when the yoga masters talk about Kundalini, right, the, yeah. the snake that comes with that. I get the same kind of chills going up and down my spine. Yeah. It's a pure electricity. Yeah, incredible. This is five stars in case you were wondering which i'm sure you were not the next one i'd never heard big iggy pop fan number 10 iggy pop tvi live 1977 this is a very interesting one because it sounds like it was recorded through in anus also the first iggy record i ever bought <laughs> yeah 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 and, and i'm sure that was because it, so it, funny. it was probably 4.99 you know it was, uh -huh, it was yeah. already marked down so that would have been in 79 or something I by love the way it. recorded in 70 77 released in 78. Super Chunk actually played, I think it's only recorded at maybe one or two venues, a uh, theater that was called the Uptown Theater in uh, Kansas yeah, City. Kansas City, yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So that was exciting to be there. And it was like an old warehouse theater, nothing cool or anything but i loved this record and, and i had nothing to judge it against either so i this is the first time I'm, he I'm hearing iggy's stuff and i gotta write on it is so punk rock it's so fast you, you have hunt hunt sales and and tony on bass and drums and there's some bowie on it i think i think bowie's on it bowie plays on it yeah on night clubbing and fun time just i, I think every version on it is amazing i think they're yeah. all great but it's the thinnest sounding record of all time because i think the legend is he got a pretty good advance from rca and 90,000 bucks. It was that much. Wow. And, and then he went to a, a shitty German studio yeah. and very quickly and cheaply for for about five grand, mm -hmm. he doctored the tapes and that was it. And, yeah. and by the way, by the way, not just David Bowie. Bowie's on keyboards and background vocals for four tracks. But what we also have as well is the Sales Brothers. So you have a proto-nascent tin machine behind yep. Iggy. Oh, yeah. Incredible. Which is really cool because you're way more liable to be slayed by this stuff stuff than you are yeah. the tin machine stuff oh totally it's very very muddy but there's that mid to late 70s coke sheen to the oh, music it's totally coked well. out yeah yeah now okay. i gotta ask you i thought these guys got clean together in germany i don't know what clean means in 1977 this sounds like cocaine so i'm just curious if they were still getting fucked up i would assume so they had to um, right i'm not sure what the rules were like i i don't think alcohol counted as anything you know, right, <laughs> so, right, right, you know? Yeah. yeah it's interesting it'd be interesting 
interesting to know what slid under the umbrella of hard drugs back then, you know? You know, when I think of mid-70s music that sounds like cocaine, what's the first thing that you think of when you think of auditory cocaine? So when you become a major, you get yet another show on Wednesday. Either Discography's The Top Ten, our Buried Treasure show, Rock Cousteau, our slag-off show, Queasy Listening, or exclusive limited series like The Private Press with Paul Major. And if you've got no financial worries to speak of, keep in mind that some of the higher Patreon tiers allow you to actually advertise on the show, choose the bands we cover, or even some of the guests we get. For the price of a cup of coffee a week, you can ensure my family's fed, build a music library that'll be the envy of your block, and connect to a thriving community of music maniacs all at the same time. Don't risk feeling badly about yourself by not giving. Patreon.com slash Discograffiti. Once again, that's Patreon.com slash Discograffiti. What's the first thing that you think of when you think of auditory cocaine? I think of Rip This Joint by the Rolling Stones. You know, it's kind of okay. the fastest song okay. sort of thing. See, I think of the opposite end of the spectrum where it's producing aesthetic garbage. So I'm thinking oh, Jefferson Starship. I'm thinking Paul Cantner. Oh, yeah. I'm thinking Coke-fueled. Like in, right, in terms of, right. uh, but I was gonna say the Cars first record, like that sounds kind of cokey to me, but it's a, it's an amazing record. Like it's I can't perfect. Im- it's I can't, it's a greatest hits album basically. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine RTB not being you know completely out of his mind. There's great stories about Roy Thomas Baker doing what was it Theater of Pain? There's a Motley Crue record or something, and just pure insanity, like more insane than the band members. So, <laughs> that's that's a tough one to achieve. <laughs> yeah, the days of the, those kind of producers are maybe over, but. It's pretty exciting to kind of learn about it. You know, this is mainly a thing for Lou Reed, I feel. But Mm in the 70s, there were all these what looked like cheap European live album knockoffs that you'd find in the record stores all the time. But you had no idea if it was good, shitty. There was one called Lou Reed Live. I think that was in 74. But this, to me, feels like that kind of thing. Now, what's cool about Lou and Iggy is that their aesthetic actually benefits from something sounding like diarrhea. Oh, totally, totally. Especially yeah, it, Iggy. Yeah, I worked at a record store when New York came out, Lou Reed. It, it's a great record, but it is. It's, it speaks to that where it kind of sounds too clean. It does, you know? yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? I would love to hear that sentiment and where he's coming from lyrically with a dirtier sound. Recorded at the same shitty German studio yeah, that this yeah. was. <laughs> <laughs> I actually saw Lou for the New York tour at the St. James Theater oh, yeah. in New York. That was incredible. Oh, I, I will never forget him doing straw man and freaking the fuck out. I mean, he was, yeah. they were so into it. Uh, this, I wouldn't say I feel as strongly about this as you only because knowing metallic KO, which is not just my favorite Iggy record, but it's in my top five live albums of all time. This to me is a step on the way to that pinnacle, but mm-hmm. I'll give this three and a half stars. I love the muddy scrunkiness of it. Ultimately, these are not the perfect or ultimate versions of these songs but i love how tossed off it feels yeah next up is a record that i really can't wait somebody actually said this morning please don't forget to talk about kiss and i was like come on of course we're going to talk about kiss number 11 kiss alive hit me probably the first live album i had and maybe heard other than like you know the songs off of frampton comes alive on the radio but my neighbor had it maybe 76 it came out in 75 right yeah that's where i first heard it and i for, 
I'm fascinated by Kiss. I'll read any book. I'll buy any documentary. I don't love the music. I did when I was a kid. I I, I really loved this and the next record, Destroyer. I, I think are two really great albums. Great but, um, album. Yeah, I like yeah. The, the first one's great too. I love the self-titled. Well, it's funny. Like I'll every now and then a song from the first record will come up, and since this Alive was the first place I heard those songs, they sound just so slow and so. I know. They're flat. They're turgid. Not exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Tur yeah. Turgid is the word. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the story of Alive is that basically the drums were kept. Like That's, that's it. Which is a testament to Peter Chris being awesome. I mean, yeah. the drumming is really fucking good on this record. And I don't care, though, but like the, the and we'll get into this with Live and Dangerous, too, where everything they did to fix it made it incredible. And you have to keep in mind, there's live footage of the Kobo Hall. Basically, I think Alive is probably four or five different shows, but the one we think of is the Kobo Hall show. And there's live footage of uh, of the Kobo Hall show. And from the first note, they're fucking up just because... <laughs> I, it's impossible to jump in these in these platform shoes right and just kind of know what you're doing in front of 15,000 people i can't even you can't comprehend what that would be like so you know there's bum notes from the first second which by the way was the dead giveaway for millie vanilli yes yeah yeah you can't be fucking <laughs> leaping around like that and yeah. have the yeah catching your breath there's no there's no breath you right. know now are you at all i'm guessing the answer is no but are you a stickler for the live document being preserved in all its greatness at as was you no. know like one end of the spectrum would be it's too late to stop now which was not altered at all right and then this from everything i have heard this is the exact opposite end of the spectrum and represents the doctor live album right but you know as a kid no baggage with yeah. that didn't care didn't understand as um, an adult i don't care i don't give a yeah. shit if it's a great record no it sounds incredible and, and it's funny i'm sorry to keep bringing it back to thin lizzie but recently i listened to some other live shows from the tour that live and dangerous was called from and the versions are nowhere near as good because they're fully live you know there, there's not the attention to precision you know with the with all the instruments um and i think with that the drums are probably the only keepers but i don't care if it makes a great record it makes a great record it shouldn't matter you know right. unless it's a record like liveage descendants that's a band that's not going to go in and fix their record so right you know you're getting what was coming off stage i think eddie kramer deserves some kind of award for this oh, because yeah. it opened up a different kind of live album and and in an attempt to try to replicate an experience, that wasn't the idea. It was to mix the best parts of a live and studio record. Yes. And my understanding of, of their circumstances at that point was that record was make or break. If that if that record didn't hit, they'd be done and the label would be done too. So yeah. it worked. Casablanca was hanging in by a thread. Apparently. Yes. But like Black Diamond on that record is amazing. Deuce is amazing. It's just so much of it is, is, is so yeah. good. And it shows you let, I mean, they, they have a lot of shitty music just a lot of bad stuff but but um there's great stuff on that record and it does show you that they they could write songs i always felt like the song that should have been a big hit that they never released as a single has got to choose oh great song yeah i love great that song. song man gene simmons is the apotheosis of the execrable human being but he's very upfront about it and they are product but i feel like in the 70s they were a great band they have not aged well they're not applicable for a woke world world 
there's no room in a woke right. world for kiss right right which is unfortunate because you know even down to our patreon i should i say our to make it sound like a huge operation it's me my patreon is the soldiers of sound guess what that's patterned after i'll give you one hint the, kiss, the army, kiss army all the way. Yeah, yeah 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 i mean i believe some of the cock grabbing aspects of led zeppelin has made them you know not really enter the modern era with grace for the kids of today so right. i'm hoping that in the future after this wave of people that people can rediscover these guys and they can come back in because they deserve it they cannot get lost in the morass of wokenness that's a hard five by the way 13 thin lizzy live and dangerous 1978 again this is one that i had not heard tony visconti providing a post show where he basically is saying we well, recreated it in the studio the guys are saying no most of it is live not that any of that means anything to me because because you know, what it comes down to is this thing fucking rips. The only thing I don't like, the last side slows down a little bit, except for the rocker. Right. But everything up to that is unbelievable. Special shout out, though, to Still In Love With You. Yes, it's all great. And there's one, there's one song in particular that I, I just kind of had this confirmed recently. I can't remember where I saw it, but there's a, there's a great song on it called Southbound. Mm -hmm. I don't know where I saw it, but I was reading about it recently. It always sounded weird to me. And it turns out it, it was recorded during a sound check on that tour. And they just put crowd sounds over it. Oh, it's, no shit. Okay. It's kind of live, but it's not in front of an audience. But and oh, it cool. sounds like it. But I think Brian Downey, the drummer, is one of the greatest rock and roll drummers of all time. And he has a band now that you can check out on YouTube. They only play in Ireland. I think it's called Brian Downey's Live and Dangerous, where they basically play the record and he's got this amazing singer, bass player, and they're all kind of young people. But I think he's so great. He doesn't play that hard, but little things that he does are so amazing. A master of the shuffle and just incredible drummer. And Brian Robertson and Scott Gorham, the guitar players, are just Nobody does that twin guitar thing like they do. And it's no. just, it's amazing. You know who actually is incredibly inspired by the twin guitar work that is doing great modern day stuff with twin guitar is Corey Hansen and Wand. Oh, yeah. You know, I've heard the name a bunch. I haven't heard it yet, but it's amazing. It, does it sound like Ben Lizzie? No, because he's got all these different combative forces mm. at work where in the same song, he'll be doing a Cortez the Killer type solo right. and then going into what is obviously television inspired it's like wilco's being there you're playing what record in the collection has inspired this one his solo album western come hmm. is the best album of the year i think okay. but the twin guitar work on southbound especially because you know this is a ballad is just so perfect yeah. i mean these guys are so in the pocket yeah they don't make them like that anymore were you a big fm rock radio guy back in the yeah. day yeah probably started listening to that stuff probably not until 78 or, or so though until i was able to figure out college radio in right. like a, a 82 or three or so the boys are back in town always sounded 100 percent brilliant when coming Incredible. out of uh, a car radio thin lizzie and boston were my two top bands to hear on fm radio the first side of the boston record i will rep boston hard still it's uh <laughs> i got a show ready to go about them it's going to be christmas week i'm trying to get bob Mayer to make that his next book but it's been tough going really yeah 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 i think Why? it's a great 
I don't know. I mean, I, I think it's an amazing story. There's so much yeah. in here. You know what happened with Dup, right? Do you know the circumstances oh, yeah. behind yeah. why he committed suicide? Yes. Yeah. That, that whole thing is so sad. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah, it's terrible. But, you know, the story's interesting, but you would talk about diminishing returns. After that first record, really after the second. Amanda? Have you heard Amanda? <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> yes. I mean, because I don't know if you've heard the records after third no. stage. No, no. Yeah, I did, so you don't have to. But, uh, okay, this one. I'm going to give four and a half stars only because I feel like side four is not up to the rest of the record. Yeah, I, I love that. the rocker, but Suicide, Shalala, and Baby Drives Me Crazy is not quite as good as the rest for me, but it's amazing. Everything that I've heard them do, amazing. And, you know, even down to the shot on the cover where it's like low angle, so he seems like a deity. Yeah. This was a deity in a lot of pain. Every time I see his face, I think about how he must have been hurting in such a deep way, but he was loud and proud on this one. All right, number 16, the Jimi Hendrix Experience. Jimi plays Monterey, June 18th, 67. I'm currently actually doing a tremendous amount of research for a Michelle Phillips interview. Oh, yeah. And in John Phillips' book, at least he says for sure that right before Jimi went on, he popped two hits of Monterey Purple. I don't know how the fuck those guys from that time, like Santana apparently was on acid during the during the Woodstock thing. Right, right. And you know where he's going like this the whole time, he's squinting his eyes and looks like he's taking a crap apparently what was going on was he thought his guitar or forget about it, he thought his guitar he realized his guitar was a snake yeah. and so he was trying to tame a snake right how the fuck did these guys it's hard enough to perform in front of thousands of people and then you add the x factor of being on lsd i don't know how they did that i walk into an elevator on lsd and i need to commit myself to a sanitarium i don't know i don't have a have an answer um, th this record i it was the first hendrix record i ever bought and it was warped i remember it plain as day it was warped and it was at a time i, I was reading a lot about him so i would have probably been 12 or 13 but i didn't really hear a lot of his music it wasn't played on the radio even what we know of as classic rock places but it was the first record i saw of his in the wild that i could buy it, it, it was at a uh, flea market it was probably 50 cents or something and, and by the way uh, it came out late it came out in 86 oh this was the split record with otis redding sorry got it that's what got it was it. yeah yes. yeah yeah one half is is hendrix i think it's like five songs maybe and the and the other side is otis redding and the and the MGs, which I don't think I ever listened to, but, but it's uh, so good. The Otis yeah, stuff is, is awesome. It's so good. Yeah, the movie I watched a lot. It's Did great. you know uh, that Otis? Another thing from the book: Otis was wearing what do they call them? Corsets. Oh, was, really? Uh, Interesting. Conscious about his weight, wow. so we had John Phillips help him into this thing. And oh my god! And yeah. I wonder if that helps or hinders your singing. Right. I was thinking about that. How in the hell? Because he really crossed over that night and yeah, gained a whole new faction of an audience. I don't know how you do that in Spanx. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I listen to that record all the time. And to this day, my brother and I still quote his little, like, there's a lot of like banter that he does in it, just like he, or he's tuning or something, or he's just doing, and he's just talking at the same time, like, yeah, it's really great to be here. No buttons to push. And so that's, <laughs> yeah. my brother and I still say that to each other all, all, <laughs> no all the time. Yeah. No buttons to push. But I, I don't have a lot to say about that record other than that. It was just a very formative record in my life in terms of being exposed to 
to rock and roll that wasn't you know like top 40 rock and roll it was it was like i i knew that this guy was important and i should hear him and then the first the first like rock concert i ever saw was this guy from seattle named randy hansen s-e-n and he did a Jimi hendrix tribute this is this is like decades before tribute bands but somehow we found out that he was playing and it was at the tower theater in philly this would have been 79 and he comes out in like a wig he was white but he must have been wearing some sort of like tint or something and <laughs> and had, had like a mustache and he, he played right-handed i love that you call it a tint so you don't <laughs> have to know what it was. so you don't have to explore <laughs> yeah. the idea of blackface <laughs> yeah I, it wasn't blackface but it was a hint of some sort he was great and he might have just died but he was playing until the end like he played casinos in washington state yeah so my first real rock concert experience was, is also hendrix related that's I amazing mean. i unfortunately you know it was with my dad at least but my first big show was lone justice opening up for brian adams oh right um, but you know concurrently i was you know buying velvet underground and nico on vinyl at 14 years old so right. i was balancing out both ends of the oh yeah uh, 17 an album that was a major one for me which is interesting because typically it's the other one that's big for people is 17 neil young and crazy horse live rust i love it because it's like rust never sleeps but there's just more <laughs> Yeah, I'm not a giant Neil Young fan, but this is another case of my brother having an album that I really latched onto. So he must have had Rust Never Sleeps, and I, and I like that a lot. And my memory is this came out soon after. Is that is that right? Yes, recorded October 78, released in November 79. And oh, okay. I, I can't remember exactly when Rust Never Sleeps came out, but if you had to be reductive about creating a distinction, Rust Never Sleeps was more of a showcase of the new songs that hadn't yes. found a home. Yes. Uh, and this was more of a like decade with an audience yeah it's funny when you think about it, but he's probably the most punk rock guitar player of anybody ever like that sound is just amazing you know it's, yeah. it's kind of everything it's distorted it's got bottom which uh, doesn't happen a lot when you've got a distorted guitar somehow he has lassoed all of this into this incredible sound that's just so singular and i think you know g getting into punk rock a little bit at that time that album spoke to me because it was so aggressive don't forget though the first side is acoustic true yeah yeah sugar yeah. mountain i am a child sugar, comes, a a time. Child comes a time after the gold rush which Rush, yeah. I, I love the antiquated quaintness of big audiences screaming and cheering when a performer sings about getting high. Yes. It always makes me smile when I hear a 1970s audience cheer on and I felt like getting high. The Mountain Goats, we have a single that was inspired directly, not from him, but by, by Ozzy Osbourne. And, and John, <laughs> he was really into this. I think it might have been Black Sabbath at the, uh, whatever, the California Pop Fest or whatever it was back in the, in the early 70s. And I guess in between songs or like during solos he keeps saying i want everyone to get high so <laughs> john wrote a song built around that sentiment and uh so you're not alone in, in, in that, that's awesome that. <laughs> i did it's just like i know it's such a simple pleasure but they say those are the best and every single time i hear anything regarding that notion it always puts a smile on me it's just yes. so so stupid and so funny but yeah this also was a big one for me this one definite five stars 20 the replacement for sale live at Maxwell's, a title that if I even just say it, Bob Mayer would probably reach ejaculatory states. Recorded on my 14th birthday. I didn't wind up seeing these guys, unfortunately, until the All Shook Down tour in 91. Obviously, it was not like this. Also, one great thing about this is that it is Bob Stinson at 
full flower. He's doing these prog runs that are alternately hard rock, but also prog, and these tributaries that kind of lead to the side. And he's kind of playing separately, but together with the band. And it's kind of toward the end of the line. It's right before the Tim sessions and everything. So talk to me about your relationship with this one. Well, I moved to North Carolina to join that band. And the week after I joined was the week after that show. And I, I saw them in Raleigh at a, at a, a skate rink <laughs> and they were great for half an hour. And then it was a Sunday too. And <laughs> anyone who plays on a Sunday knows that you it's just different energy. So they were great for half an hour and then they kind of farted around. But I remember getting a, a cassette of this show, maybe somewhere in 87. So it would just been a year later and I loved it, but it, you know, it wasn't mixed or anything. Uh, it was just like a tape of of the of the Maxwell show, and um, when Bob finally played me the tracks for it before it came out, I was just over the moon because, like that ACDC album, the separation between even though that that stage at Maxwell's is so tiny, somehow the yeah. separation is so great between Bob and Paul, and like you said, you know, Bob's so on that night. I'm so glad that show was captured because yeah. it's, he's pretty flawless, and it shows you what a great rhythm player Paul is too. You know, Paul is amazing. I love this record because you know for all the stories about the replacements being fuck-ups and throwing it and shaving their eyebrows this is the ultimate proof of how great they were you know they were so great and the guy that was in the legend is the weak link and the major fuck-up he's on fire that night right so i, right. I love it yeah it's yeah and, and also it captures them at a super important fulcrum point in their history because they're raggedy as fuck but it's not the kind of raggedy that they'd exhibited at the very beginning right because now they had some professionalism baked into their sound so yeah. you kind of have the best of both worlds and i thought i don't know why this is the case there's video of the sound check of, of this show on youtube but i don't know why there's not any video of the show you know, like it was recorded professionally yeah. i don't know why some, whoever was shooting that sound check just didn't shoot the show too maybe they did it's a shame yeah. if that's the case you know anyone who's listening to this and is thrilled to be hearing about the replacements right now bob Merritt did an unbelievable two episodes on the replacements that i consider to be sort of the introduction of us getting an audience and i was really honored that he came on to do that so early in the show's history that one's a definite five so i, I know you gotta go which is bullshit because you only spent three hours with I know, me. It's That's three a slap hours. in the face but i i want to know you know you got your fingers in just about everything you got so much cool stuff going on what do you get to do these days when you wake up what are you most look forward to doing with your time professionally and non-professionally it's all just one thing really i just kind of <laughs> it's just do, doing it all you know i i uh i don't have a normal life i'm not married or with kids and i don't go on vacations <laughs> so it's just yeah. this is all this is what i do yeah i i don't have a definitive answer it's just i'm i'm so fortunate i can do what i do and i don't have to go to school i don't have to go to work <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's is, a victory for me. Is this, is this a particularly fertile time in your career? Or oh, what, yeah. you know, tell yeah. me what you got going on. Plug away, please. Tell me everything you got going on. We'll make sure that everybody listening attends or purchases everything you got going on. Always doing the best show with Tom Sharpling every Tuesday night, available in podcast form the next day. I think we're we're hoping to do some live shows next year. Got a bunch of some Bob Mold stuff coming up. Mountain Goats European tour in the spring 
got this tour coming up in February. Which, by the way, we had Alicia Bagnano on the show. She mm -hmm. worked with you on that, I yeah. believe, right? Yeah. Yeah, on our last two records. I'm going to be doing a tour with Jason Narducci, who I play with in Bob Mold Band. It's him and the actor Michael Shannon. Wow. We're doing REM uh, songs. We did a show this past July at the Metro. So we're going to take it on the road. We're going to play basically just a couple shows in the Midwest and down the East Coast. And that's in February. We're going to be doing Murmur in its entirety. No and way. Are you yeah, going yeah. to be in Jersey or New York? Yeah. I Definitely think it's Bowery Ballroom. Michael Shannon is the singer. He's great. Just so I have that information. And so everyone else knows, what's the band name that you're going under? I think it's under their two names. I think it's Michael Shannon and Jason Narducci and friends play R.E.M., I think. Okay. Awesome. Plus, you're always writing. You're always writing columns and things like that. I yeah, mean, yeah. You ever like to sitting down and just like putting your feet up or no? Well, I, I put my feet up while I do all of that. I write my best show stuff from my bed. Yeah. I do the calls from my bed. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. It's 3.59. I want to give you one minute okay. to get ready. John, thank you so much, man. This has been an incredible experience talking about this stuff with you. And thank you so much for widening and broadening my own horizons. My pleasure. Thank you for chatting with me. All right, that about does it. Stay tuned because next week's episode is Mark Robinson rating Unrest's Perfect Teeth and Air Miami's Me, Me, Me. A heartfelt discography thanks goes out to my beautiful wife and son, Jen and Mason, John Worcester, Rudy Fishman, my incredibly loyal fans, and especially the entire Patreon community, the Soldiers of Sound. I love every last one of you, and this show would not exist without you, my friends. Speaking of friends, it's high time for some new ones. They're in our Facebook group, Discography Soldiers of Sound. That's the best way to find out what's coming up on the show, but there's a hell of a lot more. You get recaps of the day in music history, the ability to pitch questions to guests, polls that put you in the driver's seat on guest and band decisions, and access to a thriving creative hub if you're looking for a collaborator. So make sure you don't miss out. You can find the link to the Discography Soldiers of Sound Facebook page right there in the show notes. And if you don't mess with the Zuck, no sweat. Just email me at info at discography.com and I'll keep you in the loop. So now that it's done and you want more, another way to dive even deeper into the Gen X flag wavers of 1990s indie alternative gold is to leap headfirst into the David Pajo series, including the man himself rating Slint's discography. That's episodes 94 to 101. No Ages Randy Randall rating the Jesus Lizard. That's 70 and 71. My interview with No Ages Randy Randall. That's episode 88. The Bob Nastanovich rates pavement series from 49 to 58 nirvana episode 30 the replacements with bob Mayer, 28 and 29 and number 18 the pixies and of course you won't want to miss our mark robinson series which so far encompasses episodes 128 and 130 plus future episodes 135 and 136 Join us during the upcoming week. This Sunday, you can expect another deliriously sociopathic entry of Rudy Fishman's Discography Soldiers of Sound podcast. These are real people with talent and a burning fire deep inside, just like you and I. Get to know your new music-obsessed friends. And then, starting early in the week, I'll be rolling out the hugely extended director's cuts of the upcoming Mark Robinson episode for our Patreon majors and lieutenants. And of course, course, be sure to mark your calendars, because next Friday, February 23rd, we're coming at you with Mark Robinson, rates perfect teeth, and air Miami. Trust me, you're not going to want to miss it. 
And so, from now till then, don't let our youth go to waste, lads and ladies. It's this guy graffiti. Osiris. <laughs> <laughs>